Infrastructure as Code is a trend that has been popularized over the past decade, as cloud computing and distributed systems have become part of every technology company. Tools like Salt, Puppet, Chef, and Ansible allow us to manage servers and processes from the command line. David Boucher works at SaltStack, the company that makes Salt. Salt is a platform that provides configuration management and remote execution. In our conversation today, we discuss how the distributed systems architecture of Salt works and how it can be used in practice. We also discuss infrastructure as code in the context of modern infrastructure tools like containers and Kubernetes. David Boucher is a senior engineer with SaltStack. David, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. SaltStack is a platform for configuration management and remote execution. So let's start by talking about the first one, configuration management. For those who don't know, what does that term mean, configuration management? Configuration management is a general term for tracking and uh, managing the configuration of both the operating systems on your servers as well as the, the configuration of the applications themselves. So with SaltStack, I can define my different nodes, the different uh, computers in my distributed system using this configuration management. Give me a few examples of different types of nodes, different types of servers that I would want to define using Salt's configuration management. Well, let's say you your infrastructure requires um, multiple different types of applications. So maybe you have a JBoss server that's running some... Um, job application, and maybe you have a, a Redis server that's used for caching, and then maybe you have an RDBMS, so you have Postgres that's um, running there. And so you can define inside of your what we call salt states. You can define exactly what um, software packages, operating system packages, um, the configuration files, the contents of those configuration files, um, and deploy those to all those separate machines. Um, and one thing that's nice about what Salt does that, it's very easy to say you have a development environment where all three of those are on just one server for development purposes. So you could use those same Salt states to get everything configured just right, work on your development. Um, and then once you move to QA and production, then you could then split those out into separate servers or clusters of servers as needed and still use the exact same configuration states um, for those different scenarios. SaltStack is also used as a distributed remote execution system. So this means that through Salt's interface, I can run commands against any of the nodes on a cluster. Give me a few examples for how this remote execution could be useful. Well, this is a really powerful tool. In fact, when I first started using Salt um, way back in the early, early days, um, that was what we got, got me most excited about Salt, actually. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, so uh, when I first started using Salt, I, I was able to finally check the immediate current status of all my servers immediately. So I could say, I could run a command and look at the output of um, all my disk usage and compare that across all my different servers and get notifications of when something's out of whack. Um, I can, for example, when we have a, there's some new, you know, uh, OpenSSH bug and I want to run a command 
to find out which of my servers are vulnerable, I can easily run a command and immediately know exactly which servers are vulnerable and then run the commands to remediate that problem that, that I'm seeing. Um, other situations, for example, um, for software auditing, uh, and say you're in a Windows environment and you want to know exactly how many copies and which versions of uh, Adobe Photoshop are installed across your infrastructure, you can run a command and, and immediately find out exactly what is actually installed out there, not just what's in some database or a spreadsheet or what people expect to be out there, but what is installed right now. And uh, to be able to run those commands and and get that feedback immediately was just powerful as a system administrator to to be able to see um, and have that visibility into a live infrastructure was a really powerful thing for me. So it's not at all surprising that we need a distributed systems management tool like SaltStack today, but this was not always the case. When when did we start getting to the point where every company, every stack needs some sort of distributed systems management tool set? Well, the uh, as infra- as companies have grown and infrastructures have grown, um, you've seen a lot of uh, distributed things across the world. So people will have data centers, um, even small you know, server closets and things um, in different facilities. And uh, to be able to run those commands and manage all those has become a really important uh, tool. So in my, in a previous life, um, previous jobs, um, when I was working for um, various government agencies, we had uh, servers and things all around the world that we had to manage. And uh, it wasn't always easy to remotely uh, find out what's going on and remotely make changes that we needed to have happen. So at a high level, the architecture of SaltStack is fairly simple. There's a master server that is able to send commands out to other servers, which are called minions. So give me a little more explanation for how this architecture works. What is the interaction between the masters and the minions? Great question. So uh, Salt's actually even more flexible than that, but that's kind of the default uh, uh, setup. So you have your Salt master server that... Um, all your minions then connect to that Salt Master server, and they connect to a, uh, a ZeroMQ uh, uh, publish port, and uh, wait for commands. So, um, you know, that's people will use Salt in this scenario with uh, four or five servers, um, and then maybe other people that'll use Salt um, in the scenario with, you know, 25, 27,000 servers um, connected to their master. So it's a real wide range of types of people that they'll use salt. Sometimes people have a small, uh, you know, Django website, maybe has a, uh, a web server and a, and a database backend and salt allows you to manage that uh, very nicely. And so this master and minion architecture, it's, it's pretty flexible. It's hierarchical. You can add masters over masters that you already have in place Give me a picture of this hierarchical server architecture and why this is relevant. So, um, so what you're referring to there is the syndic. So, a syndic allows you to, um, like, like you said, have a hierarchical level of uh, masters. So you can have one master that's kind of like can see everything across your infrastructure worldwide, and then lower level masters that can see 
minions that are just connected to them. And there's several different situations why you would want to do that. One uh, fairly common one um, that um, several large organizations will do is they have sometimes these companies will have a large or central um, IT governance group that's basically kind of in charge of everything, all the technology, making sure security is done properly. But there might be subgroups that do this. So um, they use this, for example, at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory um, um, in California. So the higher level um, central IT group um, has visibility down into all the lower minions. They can run reports to find out um, if there are certain versions of software that's vulnerable. So if there's an Apache vulnerability that came out, they can they can run a command and find across all their servers, across their entire infrastructure, um, if there's any uh, vulnerable version, version of that software out. Um, but that also allows the individual um, business groups to have their own developers. You know, they might even be quite separate from other business groups. They can have their own salt master um, that they can manage the security, manage, you know, all the infrastructure in their little area um, and not, not be lumped into the same infrastructure as other groups that might not be really be, re- be related at all. Um, other, other places will use um, the syndicate infrastructure to uh, spread out, to manage things across uh, their infrastructure worldwide. So the, maybe at five worldwide data centers, you could have a salt master in each of those data centers that manages everything locally. And then you could have a higher level master that can reach out into all those different data centers, talk to those masters and the, the sub-minions below those, and uh, gives you kind of that distributed um, you know, infrastructure and visibility you know, worldwide just from that top-level master there. Um, in addition to that, uh, so again, Salt's very, very flexible, but kind of a philosophy that we try to avoid making a, a system administrator or an architect um, try to avoid making that person uh, bend to what salt needs. So uh, salt minion can actually run masterless by itself. For example, at uh, lift.com, they uh, will use a, uh, an auto-scaling environment. And when the, a new server will come up, we'll have the salt minion installed already. It will run and it will pull its configurations from some external sources and run everything locally just by itself. So, so, for example, so on, their, on those servers, they don't ever actually communicate with the salt master. They just get their configurations from an external source, run it locally. People will do that on their laptops as well. Um, and then we also have, um, instead of the, the constant communication over zero queue, we also have an um, interface called, we call Salt SSH, that allows you to set up an SSH connection that um, is just temporary for the length of the configuration that you're doing. And then, they, like, then that, that connection is shut down. So if you have, a, say, you have a Django app that's running, you don't necessarily need to have constant communication with it and everything. You just want to make a change to uh, your code, deploy that code, and then be done with it. And then Salt SSH allows you to do that. So there's a lot of ways you can um, use Salt and, and make it work according to your specific needs on, on your infrastructure. Okay, so I want to come back to the the idea of remote execution and get uh, an end-to-end description for what happens when I submit a job to SaltStack. 
Okay. So in the typical environment where you have a, a master and minions, uh, the minions are listening on a pub port on the master. It's a ZeroMQ pub sub interface. And uh, a typical, typical command you'll call salt. And then you have a target. And the target can be, you know, asterisk for all your servers, or it could be um, you could target certain subsections of your infrastructure. So you could say, I want all my Ubuntu servers that are um, that have you know t- two gigs of RAM or more, and you know whatever criteria that you want, and then you uh, pass it a command uh, to execute. So when the minions when they're they're listening on that pub port, they'll see those the command is published, and they'll evaluate whether or not they match the target that was there. So in that scenario I just, just I just described, if, we're, if it was a CentOS server. It would just not. It would just skip that. Would not execute that. Um, but, if, but if it didn't match that target, then that minion would then execute uh, the the command that you um, specified. Once that command is completed, then the minion will then return that data um, in a JSON serializable format to the master, which, which then you can see on the command line, um, and and you can re- review the output. You know, see if there were any failures, um, see what changes were made. Um, in our enterprise GUI, then you would also be able to see that in a nice uh, way there, see which which servers had errors on them when they ran that command and that type of thing. Okay, so what happens when a node fails? So I get these all these nodes are, are connected through 0MQ. Uh, so what, what happens when, like, a minion fails or when the master node fails? So, um, when you're talking about a minion failing, are you talking about the entire server failing or the the some minion daemon? Um, I guess take me through both cases. Okay. So, in the case the the entire server fails, then that minion would not uh, see the job or any jobs that um, were sent by the master, um, and so it would never it would never see that job. So um, the job jobs that you send out are ephemeral. So if the minion's not around to see that, it won't pick that up later. Um, it will just you'll when the when the mini comes back up, or if you rebuild that, then you would uh, send those jobs back out to it as well. Um, in case in case there was a problem and the salt minion daemon itself um, died or crashed for some reason, um, the server would still run. The application would continue to run um, as it was last configured. Um, you just wouldn't be able to, you know, if the salt daemon wasn't running, then you wouldn't be able to uh, send commands to it through the normal interface. Um, a lot of people will set up salt SSH um, for the situation, so they have like a, a you know, a, a secondary backup in case they do need to to uh, push the command out through SSH um, and uh, and fix any problems like that. So there's a system in Salt called the Reactor. Could you explain what the Reactor does? Yeah, the Reactor is part of a really powerful um, event-driven interface that Salt has. So um, because we have this really rich um, flow of data back and forth between the master and the minion, um, uh, you can take advantage of that information. So there's what we call the event bus. So things that happen on a minion, for example, every time you run, uh, you execute some command, um, if you run, you apply some salt states um, and various, various other things. Uh, events are sent from the minion across this event bus up to the salt master. 
Um, the reactor is one tool that allows you to listen to events that are coming on the event bus. And so, for example, let's say you can set up a reactor that would listen for um, a key acceptance. So if you accept a new key for a brand new uh, minion, event is sent for that. You can have a reactor that then um, sees that new key acceptance and then does something. Maybe register that minion ID in some database somewhere, uh, throw some information in your CMDB, uh, maybe run some commands on that new server, maybe to configure it, set up SSH, set up security, you know, kind of the sky's the limit. Whatever things you need, um, the reactor could do that. Um, you could also have the reactor do things. Uh, let's say you have a, an application that you don't have much control over, and it it constantly um, uh, goes up, uh, increases memory usage, and then you need to restart that service every once in a while. Like, well, um, you could just set that to restart every night at midnight, but maybe there's some, there's there may be some repercussions for that. So we have a thing called a beacon that runs on a minion, and a beacon can check for the status of something and send send an event. So we have a uh, memory uh, beacon and a load beacon. And so if the memory reach, uh, passes a threshold, it can send an event up to, up the, the event bus. And then the reactor can see that and say, oh, when this service uh, goes beyond this threshold of, of memory, then we need to restart that service. And then bam, it'll do that. And instead of having to manually check that all the time, you can have that restart that service and then maybe log that in uh, your monitoring system somehow. Um, same thing with like, you know, disk usage. Maybe if you get past a certain threshold disk usage, um, you can have a beacon check for that, you know, every, every minute or every hour, whatever you feel comfortable with. Send an event up the event bus. The reactor goes, oh, hey, we have a server that's beyond 80% in our, in our disk usage. Um, I'm going to send a notification uh, to our CMDB so that that can be checked by a human and, and find out why that's happening. Or if it's a known situation, you know, request uh, whatever remediation needs to happen for them. So I can also use salt to set up continuous deployment, which I can do by setting up the master node to talk to my Git repository. And then I can configure the system to respond to a code push by running automated tests across the system. Can you talk in more detail about how I would set up continuous deployment and use continuous deployment with salt? Yeah. Um, there's a, quite a few different ways you can do that. Um, one that's uh, fairly common is that they'll have um, a Jenkins server that will uh, test new commits, um, that type of thing. And if all the tests pass, then the Jenkins server itself can send an event on salt's event bus and say, Hey, this, uh, Git tag is um, has passed all of our tests and deploy. And uh, if that does, uh, when, the, when the salt master sees that through the reactor or possibly an engine, then um, you'd have all these. You'd have your your deployment routines already set up so that um, you could push the code out to all the all the different servers and then go through whatever deploy process you need to um, to do that. And so. What's really powerful about that is that your developers can make their changes, push their changes to Git, um, and then have a little test run, have successful tests pushed out, and just have that you know constant 
um, deployment where you're you know, deploying multiple times a day uh, based on um, these successful testings. And that allows your, your, your developers to have that really that desirable uh, quick feedback um, uh, with, with their changes without having to give them keys to their entire infrastructure. So they don't have to have root on all your production servers. All they have to focus on is just making sure their code passes all their tests in Jenkins and Jenkins and Salt just knows how to deploy that for them. So when you're working with this distributed set of production servers and you have, let's say you have a new version of software and you want to deploy the code to a single server in order to test the code against a small fraction of users, this is known as the canary deployment. So this is another usage that I can um, take advantage of, of SALT for. How can I do canary deployments with SALT? Um. So that's actually really, really simple. Um, there's a couple of ways you can tag or give a, a piece of metadata to a server. So you can set that up in centrally in what's called um, pillar, where you assign certain data, pieces of data centrally there. Or you can set that in what's called grains, which are where the that's where the the, the minion or the server itself is kind of the center, the, the uh, source of truth, and you would just tag that you can say you know canary is true or have a list of roles and one of those roles could be canary and then your target when you run a command would just include a a target of you know role canary and then you know maybe that's five percent of your infrastructure or whatever you decide that could be um they only those would receive or run that execute those commands that you wanted um, and you could actually do that at, if you wanted to have like a slow rollout. So you could say, you know, you have, you know, different levels of canary. So say you want to start with just 5%. You could have, you know, a certain number of those that are your, you know, canary group one. If that seems fine, you want to start spreading that, spreading that out, move to, you know, 25 or 50% of the infrastructure as you slowly, you know, build load on these servers. Um, so it makes it very easy to, kind of slice and dice your infrastructure like that so you can slowly deploy that um, as needed. Because so maybe maybe you won't see a, a problem until, you know, you really are under a, a very, very heavy load that you will only see in production, and you can you can test for that with Salt very easily. So let's say I'm building my company and I'm using Salt as my distributed configuration management and remote execution tool, and I'm scaling up my business to thousands and tens of thousands of compute nodes, what are the kinds of bottlenecks that I'm going to begin to hit with, uh, with salt? Well, um, once you get up to four or 5,000 nodes, um, there are quite a few um, little flags that you can modify on your salt master to start, um, allowing yourself, allowing to scale up. So there's things like the high watermarks near zero Q, um, queues, um, there's also uh, the number of worker threads and things that Salt uses to manage a load. Um, at the higher level levels of uh, number of minions, uh, some things just like the, just the, the sheer quantity of data that's just being sent back to the master all at once um, can be, you know, uh, quite difficult to deal with. So, um, you know, LinkedIn I believe is running something like twenty-five or twenty-seven thousand minions against one Salt master. Um, of course, that salt master is an incredibly beefy machine, 
um, to, to handle all that. Um, but a lot of times people will end up uh, using multiple salt masters because uh, generally speaking, there's not a whole lot of companies that are at that scale that have, you know, 500,000 servers in one data center. So a lot of times there's even um, facility and, and network considerations as, and even political, you know, internal uh, company reasons to have, you know, separate salt masters that kind of helps you to scale out laterally. Um, our salt enterprise um, API as well sits above your salt masters. That also allows you to, to scale out to some of these larger nodes. But for most companies, um, salt handles scaling from, you know, two or three servers all the way up to six, seven, 10,000 servers without any problem. And uh, there's just a few tweaks to, to make when you get to that kind of stage. So you mentioned LinkedIn scaling to like 27,000 nodes. What kinds of things is LinkedIn using Salt for? Are there any unique usages uh, that you can share that that LinkedIn uses to take advantage of Salt? Uh, sure. Um, they've been pretty open with a lot of uh, what they've done. Um, they've spoken at our Salt Conf um, for several years now, describing a lot of things that they're doing. Um, but they they're using Salt for a lot of the you know, typical things, you know, managing um, their c- configuration of their servers, um, deploying code, um, you know, just all those basic things, really. I don't think there's anything really um, magical about um, specifically what they're doing. Hmm. Okay. Well, so what about like, with, with data warehousing stuff? Like, would they... Would they take advantage of Salt to manage Hadoop jobs, or is that would they, they do that with something else? Um, I'm not sure. They because they're such a large organization, um, they you know have different teams that do a lot of those different things. So um, I'm not sure about uh, LinkedIn's uh, uses of Salt with their data warehousing specifically. Um, but I do know a lot of companies uh, use Salt to manage their Hadoop jobs. Manage, you know, they'll spin up, look at requests for uh, from a scientist where they want, you know, 400 uh, new servers with a, in a Hadoop cluster, and they use Salt and Salt Cloud to spin up VMs and and uh, give them that infrastructure. Uh, so that's used um, quite a bit. Um, the academia and um, even actually the uh, Large banks, um, trading firms, um, again, academia that are, that are working with big data love using Salt because um, they have so many servers they're managing and all these different clusters, and they can run these commands quickly across all those infrastructures. They don't have to make a change and then wait an hour for those changes to kind of filter out to their infrastructure. They can make that change and then have it affected and get those results back, you know, in just a matter of a few seconds. And so, you know, we're heavily used in, in governments, um, again, um, large training firms, big banks, um, and uh, a lot of universities uh, for those tasks. SALT is part of this movement of infrastructure as code tools, which includes tools like Chef and Puppet and Ansible. Explain why these infrastructure as code tools started getting created. Well, um, 
there was a need to, um, especially in the config management uh, portion of things, to know exactly what's been deployed, how it was deployed, and how to reproduce that. So when you had a small number of servers, uh, you know, typically you have like just one person that would just kind of be your server guru and he or she would configure your server and get it running, kind of get it dialed in. And then that was kind of that. And so you run into, run into the situations and everyone's probably heard of them where, you know, like there's some critical server that's been sitting in that server room for six years and the person who built it is, you know, they've, they've quit, they've got another jobs and nobody really knows how it was set up and what parts are critical and, you know, what's going on. And so they just, nobody would touch it. And I've even heard of places where they would image that server and put it on new hardware and just run that server again on, on the new hardware using the, the image they took of that, of that hard drive because they just couldn't, you know, they just didn't know what was going on with that server. Um, using a config management tool allows you to define, uh, for example, in Salt, in a very clear way, um, exactly what should be on that server, what packages are there, um, what um, code is deployed, um, and what all the configurations are. And you have that in a very succinct, clear, textual definition. And so if a server dies or you need to re add new nodes to that server, you can take that definition and create a new one. Um, it also helps manage the life cycle. So as you... As, a, as the developers and system administrators need to make changes to those servers, you can keep the those that those salt states, that definition um, in Git or whatever source control you want, and you can see those changes through time. And so, if you make uh, make a change and that causes problems, then you can just revert that in Git and then redeploy with the proper um, code there. Um, you know, it's a real common thing to have some kind of a problem and then so, so a developer logs into production system they tweak a couple config values and then it solves the problem um, but then everyone forgets what changes were made and so if you have a disciplined uh, config management solution you can take those fixes record them and make sure they're reused if those systems get um, rebuilt or duplicated or, or reused somewhere else so that was a really important thing um, and that's, you know, that's why Puppet, Chef, and, and later Salt came along uh, to solve. What are the the differences between these different tools? Because you all often hear them getting lumped together, Puppet, Chef, Salt, Ansible, etc. What are the differences? They must be solving slightly different problems at least. Yeah, um, I, I think the, you know, the biggest thing is you really should be using some tool. So if you're not using a tool or you're using something homegrown, um, I think you're really um, making your own job harder um, if you're not using a tool. Um, as far as Salt, one of, the reasons, one of the things that's different about Salt is that remote execution was not an afterthought. Um, when Salt was first written, the very first thing that was written was the remote execution. Um, having the ability to um, get the status of your servers, run commands on them very quickly, um, was is was something that's very very different. Um, everything else that Salt does um, basically works on top of that remote execution system. So that's something that's um, quite different. Um, in fact, uh, places like uh, Wikipedia and others will use Salt to 
uh, deploy their puppet manifests or execute their chef modules. So, um, for example, it's uh, Wikipedia. They uh, were they had something like 35,000 35, lines of puppet manifests, and they just didn't have the, the resources to go through and change all those out for to salt. And so um, they would use salt to deploy code and then run, execute their puppet runs to do all the configurations and use salt to do that orchestration, part of the piece of it. So that's a pretty common use case. If you go look at our code base, we have modules um, to work with salt, for, with puppet, with chef, with Ansible. Um, Salt's a very pragmatic tool, a very pragmatic company. So there's almost no large company or, or organization that we work with that um, just completely uses salt or completely uses, you know, one tool. Cause a lot of times there's just history. There's, you know, uh, personal preferences within a company. So salt, you know, works really well with uh, all these different tools. Interesting. So you're saying that these are, these can be complementary tools rather than uh, mutually exclusive. Absolutely. Many architectures today are not just composed of servers. The servers have gotten sliced up into Docker containers or other containers, uh, Rocket. So can Salt be used to manage these containers? Absolutely. Um, so the whole containerization of the tech world is still kind of, people still kind of figuring out the best way to do that. There's a lot of tools out there um, that do that. Um, but generally unless you're like a brand new small company, um, there's very few companies that are completely containerized. So having salt be it, being able to straddle your older infrastructure that's still going to be around for a while, as well as be involved with new infrastructure is a really powerful um, ability. Uh, salt, because it's, um, allows you to do this orchestration. Um, and you can build applications on top, on top of salt allows you to do some interesting things. So, for example, I have a demo where I, I um, load up a bunch of different um, web servers in containers, uh, in Docker containers. And then because Salt has the ability to inspect your infrastructure, um, in, this, in, this, in this example, it would spin up an HA proxy server and then find out which Docker hosts were running the uh, the web services that I wanted. And so I get the IP address of the Docker host as well as the port that that container was running on, and then have it your proxy proxy um, directly to those uh, those containers. People will also use Salt to create their Docker containers. Uh, I believe Lyft is doing um, that as well. So instead of having all their configuration in Docker files, which is basically just Bash, um, they will use Salt to create the container to their exact specifications, and then create that. Uh, an image based off that that container. So there's a lot of ways um, these people are using Salt with different types of containers, Docker containers, Rocket, um, as well as Lexi uh, containers as well. And uh, so we really like being involved in that space. It's definitely you know where a lot of uh, investigation and progress is going towards. So Salt's definitely uh, involved there. And as we look towards the future of continually containerized architectures, there are these these fully uh, full container management tools like Kubernetes or Docker Swarm. There's other container management system tools, Mesosphere, that um, 
it seems like these manage the full container story. Do these do these systems interact with an infrastructure as as code tool like Salt as well? Uh, yeah, a lot of them do um, because you're um, defining your configurations for those. Um, in fact, Kubernetes uses Salt under the covers. Um, in fact, one of our oh. one of our employees, uh, Seth House, actually had the first non Google commit to the Kubernetes code base. Um, when uh, he he updated the uh, the version of Salt uh, that they were using, um, so yeah, they use it Salt under the covers for some operations, not not everything, but for, for a few things. Um, so, I, you know, there's definitely uh, a lot of tools that kind of maintain the, the whole life cycle for that, and so there might be places where you know Salt may or may not, um, you know, be used directly in there. Um, but there's also very few places where everything is containerized and everything um, is uh, directly tied into that. So, you know, as as these tools um, get built out, you know, there's modules for Mesos and there's modules to work with Kubernetes and things. And um, so there's definitely uh, room for Salt to be of use in those types of infrastructures. What are the types of things that that I would get with salt that I would not get with like the, whatever the Kubernetes, uh, I forget what the Kubernetes command line, I think kubectl, you know, kubectl, whatever, you know, just the things I can do from the Kubernetes command line. Well, um, so, so Kubernetes is basically the experience of Google using containers for, for the last however many years kind of condensed into, um, uh, that, package. So there's a lot of uh, lessons learned there. Um, one of the powerful, powerful things about Salt is that Salt makes it very, very, very easy to add your own specific functionality um, on top of Salt um, and deploy that and, and use that functionality. So uh, with a tool like Kubernetes, um, uh, once you get that figured out, I mean, even deploying Kubernetes, um, adding, making changes to that um, isn't going to be as simple as adding a new salt execution module or um, uh, you know, extending salt to do exactly what you need. So um, people use salt to deploy Kubernetes um, to uh, you know, get that all set up and configured. And um, Salt makes it very easy to connect into Kubernetes. So maybe there's other tools, other systems that you're using. Salt will make it very easy to uh, communicate with Kubernetes and interact with with that um, in, a, in a powerful way. So many companies today are built on public clouds like Amazon Web Services. And the, the public cloud companies like AWS or Google's compute platform or Azure from Microsoft, it seems like it would make sense for these companies to build. I mean, they, they build a platform as a service on top of their infrastructure as a service offering. And it would seem like their, their configuration management and the remote execution tooling that they built, that they would build on top of their platform as a service would be... Um, like more more amenable to their own ar- architecture than something like a chef or a puppet or a salt stack. But in actuality, there are plenty of people who are using these kinds of tools on top of 
uh, their servers on AWS. So why why is that the case? Why why didn't these infrastructures as service providers, platforms as service providers, why didn't they build why 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 doesn't their tooling do the job of the infrastructure as a code tools? Um, I think it's a matter of, of focus, um, and you know they've you know pretty universally uh, created APIs that allow uh, their users to kind of do whatever they want. Um, I think AW, you know they, they basically want to be able to be a partner with whatever tool their their users um, want to use. Um, so like uh, AWS has actually done a little bit of that, but we have good relationships with you know with Amazon, Rackspace, and Microsoft and Linode and Google Cloud Compute, and um, they're just really happy to have their users have good access with whatever tools um, that they're using. Um, and Solve actually allows you to um, work in a cross-cloud way. So um, I have demos that I run where I spin up virtual machines on five or six different cloud providers, um, set up uh, network um configurations and DNS configurations and um, run clusters of software, you know, across cloud and that type of thing. So, you know, Salisbury, uh, I think we support something like 19 different public and private clouds that uh, people use and um, allows you to have that cross environment, you know, so that people, people get, don't get locked into one specific provider. So why why is that a practical idea? So some listeners may not that may sound really weird to to them. Like why would you want multiple clouds? Why would you want to manage your infrastructure across AWS and Google and Azure and Rackspace? Why would you want these multiple providers on this for the same application? So I've seen several different reasons um, for our users. Um, one is sometimes there's historical reasons why you're in one cloud. And then later on, there's business reasons why they start migrating to a different cloud. And so usually there's a lot, there's a lag there where they're just split across, across clouds because um, it takes time to make those changes. Um, but there's also cost considerations. So one of our customers um, has a significant um, footprint of their own data centers and infrastructure, but they wanted to be able to convert some of their costs to uh, 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 to be you know temporary costs, and not have to build out new infrastructures quite as frequently, and so they would burst some of their to uh, two actually three different clouds based on pricing that they got from those different cloud providers, based upon performance uh, characteristics of the different cloud providers and features that are available. And so that allowed them to save a lot of money when they needed to um, uh, increase their capacity, but maybe only for you know a few hours or a few days. And instead of having to have all this excess capacity in their own data centers, uh, they could do that by bursting on the, on, on the clouds. Um, other places will also use it for um, disaster recovery. So if, um, you know, Pretty much all cloud providers at different times have had serious, you know, catastrophic issues where it's just down, and uh, they've, you know, they're definitely improving in that area. Um, but a lot of companies uh, do uh, feel more comfortable having the ability to use different clouds for disaster recovery purposes and that type of thing. So there's a whole variety right. of reasons why that happens. 
Right. So you go beyond the the multi data center approach to the multi cloud offering approach. Um, so we hear this term DevOps often in the context of tools like Salt and Puppet and Chef. Um, and we've done a number of shows about DevOps. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of ambiguity, different definitions around this term. What does that term mean to you? Well, um, to me, DevOps is just a tighter collaboration between developers and the systems administrators and architects. And um, it, basically, I, I believe it, it creates, it helps create a better product, a more reliable product uh, when these team, the people are working on the same team as opposed to shifting blame, um, that type of thing. So uh, within Salt, you know, we, we, do, we work with, you know, thousands and thousands of people that all have differing versions of what DevOps means. And so we actually, you know, try to be very agnostic as far as that goes. And so people use Salt for their different DevOps operations um, and they're able to use Salt in a way that works great for their organization because, you know, there's, you know, probably tens of thousands of different versions of what DevOps means to the company. And then in, in the end for us, for Salt, that's really what matters is, you know, how Salt can be effective for however a company has their DevOps organization uh, set up. Hmm. So let's talk more about SaltStack, the company itself. Tell me how development of the product of Salt goes on at the company, how you guys uh, manage different teams and how the organization is managed? Well, we're kind of an interesting company because um, well, we do have somewhere around 60 employees um, at this point. Um, our Salt is developed hand-in-hand with all of our users and customers around the world. So in the course of a, of a given day, um, we will have uh, new features, new bug, bug fixes, um, support requests, um, issues opened from people literally around the world. Um, it, you know, in the course of one day, I'll be talking with um, a salt user in, in Hong Kong, um, a packager in Australia, a salt employee in Portugal, and someone else in Russia. I mean, it's literally worldwide. And within Salt, we have uh, Salt Stack, the company, we have uh, several teams that kind of focus on certain things. So we have a platform team that does um, things that are specific to certain certain platforms, so like packaging for Windows, Mac, um, all the different Linuxes, um, that type of thing. We have a core team that handles all the pull requests that are coming into Salt, um, uh, core development, um, bug fixes that are related to you know, core pieces of salt, that type of thing. Um, and then we also have um, a team that is working with all the different cloud providers, making sure our cloud modules work well, working with um, the salt proxy, which, which communicates with switches and things like that. Um, that, that, that team kind of handles that. Um, and then we have a QA team that uh, has, that manages all of our Jenkins servers that's, uh, works with salt, both salt employees and our community to continually add new, uh, more and, and better 
uh, unit and integration testing uh, for SALT. Um, and so we, and we try to maintain a really good communication between all those different teams so that we're you know, on the same page and, and working smoothly. So, you know, there's, again, the uh, working with the community um, and our SALT team and, you know, we have SALT employees that are here locally in, in Utah. We have a lot that, that work remotely and um, SALT is built to kind of work in, in a distributed manner. What's the business model of the company? Um, so our income comes from uh, a few different sources. Um, one that we do a lot of is we provide support uh, contracts for companies um, just on open source salt. So if you have you know, 5,000 servers and you're running salt and you'd like uh, greater access and priority support for salt, um, we, we provide that. We also do on-site and remote uh, SALT trainings, uh, that type of thing. Um, and uh, we're actually also very close to releasing our SALT Enterprise uh, API, which is a system that sits above your SALT masters that allows you to several things. One, allows you to scale across multiple masters um, and grow your infrastructure to uh, larger numbers of minions. Uh, and also provides a really nice GUI that um, makes it really easy to drill down and to see where trouble problem trouble spots are, uh, view, do reporting, um, security reporting, and various things like that. What's in the future for Salt? What's the where is the company headed? What are you what are you working on? What kinds of big engineering initiatives? So right now, the number one is the, uh, the, the Salt Enterprise API. It's actually uh, very close to being uh, released. Um, but we are going to continue our integrations with uh, uh, various you know, operating systems. So we've, this last uh, year and a half or so, we've made a big push to improve our Windows support, uh, support of Windows DSC, Microsoft Azure. Uh, we have a lot of Windows users, and Salt works fantastically on Windows, and we're going to continue that uh, um, that partnership um, there. Um, and also we've been partnering with a lot of um, improving our integrations with uh, different operating systems like uh, uh, for example like OpenSUSE um, we have partnership with Microsoft um, closer working with, uh, with Ubuntu and things like that. Um, so basically you know Salt development is driven both by kind of some, some of Salt Stack's internal um, goals um, to provide you know security auditing that type of thing, um, but but also by the community and what they desire. So the, our community will make requests and also provide features as well. Um, there's plenty of features within Salt that you know we didn't think of, but a community member really needed something and uh, they added that in. So that's always a factor. Cool. Well, David Boucher, thanks for coming on the show um, and talking about Salt Stack and infrastructure as code. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, Jeff. I really enjoyed it.